Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, our living word, as we encounter you in the written word of God, which is given for our benefit and strengthening. We pray with one soul and voice that your Holy Spirit would go before its reading and preaching and work in us soft hearts and ready minds to receive your gospel and be drenched by your life-giving grace. Amen. Please be seated. Well, today we're taking up the gospel reading and uh, certain elements of this, uh, at least how I, um, as I encountered the passage anew this week, um, eventually, and I guess this is the way my mind works, uh, reminded me of our family vacation to Michigan uh, this past month. We went to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, so we shot across the Straits of Mackinac and uh, stayed in St. Ignace for a few days. And when you have these family vacations, each day you want to try to do one major activity uh, that can mark that, that day and, and build memories. And the first day, we went to a place called the Garland Zoo, which is about 35 miles west of, of St. Ignace. And so we, uh, we meandered down U.S. Highway 2. Uh, um, uh, hugging the north shore of Lake Michigan, and uh, we eventually came to Garland Zoo. Now, the, this Garland Zoo is not the largest zoo I've ever been to, uh, and it's not the cheapest zoo I've ever been to. St. Louis will always hold that place, uh, obviously, but it is definitely the most unique zoo that we have ever encountered in our lives. First of all, when you when you pull up in the uh, in the parking lot and you have five peacocks on somebody's pickup, that's that's not a normal sight for a zoo. Uh, apparently, people had a habit of, of uh, taking roosters and chickens and just dropping them off at the zoo. The zoo will adopt them and let them roam through it free throughout. Uh, the, the, there were coyotes. Uh, there, there was an African lion. There were uh, New Guinea singing dogs, which I've never seen before. Uh, you had all manners of animals. You could feed as many little goats as you wanted. Um, you had uh, two brown bears in one particular exhibit, and in with them was a dog. I, I mean, like a, a like an ordinary house dog that had just been rescued. And so they just put him in with the bears. And that dog is the alpha male uh, in, the, in that group. Uh, the dog gets to eat first and keeps the bears away. Um, well, well, all of that was incredibly, mind-blowingly unique. Uh, and, and before we got to the brown bears, we, we passed a Siberian tiger exhibit. Uh, and, and the particular tiger in there at that time was Miko, uh, a male. And uh, Miko tended to, he, he was pretty lazy the whole time, uh, kind of lying around as tigers tend to do when you have visitors passing you every day, until we arrived. And then Miko saw Josh, our son. As I was pushing Josh in his wheelchair, Miko got up. And started patting on his paws towards um, uh, towards where he could get a better look. And so we were saying hi to Miko uh, for, for whatever reason. We we're going on to the brown bear exhibit, and Miko started following. And so we decided to do a little psychological experiment here, because that's what we're known to do at zoos. And I took Josh back the other direction. Well, Miko... Followed Josh, never taking his eyes off of Josh. And we kept going back and forth, back and forth. Miko would turn on a dime, always staying in stride with Josh. Finally, we just turned Josh into an alcove where there's this uh, incredibly thick glass where you can just peer in there. And Josh put his hand up on the glass. 
And Miko put his paw up, matching Josh's from the opposite side. And that's what we're thinking. Oh, this is, he wants to be friends. We, we, got, we got to thinking, this is a tiger in tune with the better angels of his nature. This is wonderful. Um, you know, obviously not applying my Calvinism towards the animal kingdom. And so we, we thought it was wonderful. The tiger wants to be Josh's friend. That's what we we're assuming until we talked to the zookeeper. The zookeeper said, oh, actually, it's because Miko noticed he was in a wheelchair and he couldn't walk and he was defenseless. Miko was keeping track with Josh because he wanted to eat your son. Miko didn't want to stop and pray with Josh. He stopped because he saw Josh because Josh was prey. And so that, yeah, you know, it doesn't put a damper because, you, you, you know, they're separate from you and no harm is coming to your son. But it really overturned our assumptions of what was going on. Well, we, we sometimes go to a passage like this parable of the rich fool and we have assumptions about this is primarily about wealth, about economics, about you can't take it with you and a number of different cliches. And all that is in play. But there's a larger reality here that Jesus is wanting to press into our hearts. That the parables, these stories, are about living in God's kingdom as his beloved kingdom subjects. And his subjects must live because our hearts have been captured by Christ according to Christ's wishes. And what does Christ say here? Well, a couple of things which form the hinge of this passage. Um, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's one thing that blares out at us. And towards the end, uh, the, the affirmation um, turned around in a positive direction that we must live in a way of being rich toward God. In other words, to be content in who God is, and in what he provides. Now, we, we can throw around phrases like godly contentment. It's easy to do. I put it in the title, after all. Uh, but uh, if, if gospel life, if kingdom living is wrapped up in a sense of godly contentment for the subjects of Jesus' kingdom, what does Jesus disclose to us about it here? And, and so there's a short sequence that he does in terms of opening up this question and then explaining it in a larger sense with the parable. But, but we see that Jesus places a great deal of urgency upon this idea of living with godly contentment. First three verses of this passage, the whole thing comes up. It's, it's amazing how Jesus, in reaction to a stray comment that someone says, can turn it into a teachable moment. That's what he does here. Uh, it says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, if someone broke in and interrupted someone and, and, and brought that up today, that, that we would probably be taken aback by that. Be like, oh, you jerk. He's got something going. We're wanting to listen to Jesus. Um, but this was not out of bounds in ancient Jewish society. Reason being, it was not uncommon for them to urge legal action to be taken in public. Um, Jewish inheritance laws were as such that when the head of the household died, uh, and he, his inheritance, his assets, everything, property were passed on. Uh, the 
the, the inheritance would go to his living sons. Uh, the eldest son would get half of the inheritance. The remaining sons would divide up the other half equally amongst them. Um, so what, what this seems to be going on is this is probably one of the younger brothers uh, and his other brother who may be educating the other half of this is slow to, on the uptake to give him his part of the stash. Uh, so that, that's one thing. He's, he's interested in justice. He, 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 he really says something's wrong. We need to correct this wrong. And for him to blurt out and ask Jesus to take care of this uh, may, may seem uh, to us very odd, but he addresses him as teacher, as rabbi. And in Jewish society, uh, rabbis were allowed were permitted to settle legal disputes on these property divisions uh, amongst heirs. So he, he's want, notice what's happening. He wants a good goal. He wants justice. He wants fairness. And he's going about it in a legitimate, okay method. But then Jesus' answer upsets the whole apple cart. To paraphrase what he says, Jesus looks at the guy and says, Really? Are you kidding me? I know he says, Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? But what Jesus is getting at is, You think this is urgent. There is actually a disconnect here. And it's a disconnect that we can share in common with this guy who wants his cut of the inheritance. Your goals may be good ones. Your methods of reaching those goals could be excellent ones uh, and praiseworthy and noble ones as well. But your motives, the 90% of the iceberg that can't be seen, Okay, people can see what you're doing. You may even say what, what the reason why you're doing that. No one can see the motives by which you're doing these things. Those are very hidden. And Jesus says, I can see into the hidden reason because he says, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. He says there is, even in the midst of legitimate desires, you can still be greedy. And he says, take care. Take care. The, the Greek word there is, uh, is more military language. He says, beware. Be on your guard. You have to stand your post. You have to dig in. Because there is this enemy called greed. There is an enemy called covetousness that is nipping at your heels. This is a battle. This is a battle that you and I face uh, on the issue of how we are content. And Jesus gives the reason life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. And when he says abundance, because Jesus has used abundance very positively in other contexts, he says, I have come to give you life and that you may have it abundantly. Okay, different context here is not referring primarily to the fact that God has blessed his people uh, with material possessions or otherwise. But rather, he, he is saying you have to beware about having a passion and overriding desire for excess beyond the ordinary. And especially when that crowds out your identity as a child of God. And for Jesus to say that here in the text means that's a very real struggle for his people. And we may hear Jesus saying that to us and we may think, ouch, Jesus, that hurts for you to poke your finger in our chest that way. 
uh, it's very abrupt and disturbing. I would agree. The question is, is it true? Um, well, one of the stories from our family history, and I've come by, uh, by tracking down the evidence that uh, 90% of our family legends are true. Um, this happened years and years ago, back in the uh, back in the 30s, uh, when um, my grandfather, Grandma and Grandpa Davis, my dad's side, this is before my father was even born. Uh, they were in a, a pastorate in Western Pennsylvania, and um, a, a couple in their church had asked them to come over for dinner, I believe. And so, uh, Grandma and Grandpa and my uncles, uh, their their children, Walt and Glenn, at the time, probably kindergarten, pre-kindergarten age, uh, went over for dinner. And uh, after dinner, Grandpa was engaging the other husband in conversation, but Grandpa sometimes, on occasion, had a tendency to keep an ear out for other conversations going on, and this was one of those times. He heard the, the other wife, the other woman, um, trying to uh, have a chat with little Walt and little Glenn, and... She spoke to Walt and said, No, and Walt, you like me, don't you? And little Walt looked up at her and said, No, nah, no, I don't like you. And maybe to save face, she turned to Glenn and asked him the same question. She said, Well, now, Glenn, you like me, don't you? To which Glenn said, No, I don't like you either. And Grandpa did not discipline, punish, spank either Walt or Glenn. And his reasoning was because they had told the truth. Now, we can debate my grandfather's parenting techniques in that moment. Uh, but um, the, the, the point is, they said something that was very abrupt. It might even be socially disturbing. But it was the truth. We can be disturbed and aghast that Jesus dares to go there with us. That, that we could have motives uh, that, that are so selfish and sinful where we would desire our stuff, our possessions, our anything, fill in the blank, more than him. But this is especially difficult, especially in our culture where the American dream is so sacrosanct, where personal betterment and the, the pursuit of happiness, as good as that may be, as enshrined uh, in, in our founding documents may be, it's believed like an article of faith to the point where that outstrips the devotion of God's subjects for God himself. So there are some questions I think that Jesus raises here for us. Do we believe, do you believe this is a battle that you need to take up and stand firm against? Are you willing to consider that life does not necessarily equal your stuff? How aligned are you with your possessions where that becomes a reality? Or even more pointedly, who do you prize more? What do you prize more, your gifts or the giver? Some things to consider.
in the urgency of godly contentment. And then Jesus moves on to pointing out the wisdom of a life that is marked by godly contentment. Now, he doesn't do this directly. Jesus, uh, it's almost like he says, okay, you call me teacher, I'm going to employ some teacher techniques here. Uh, And he does this, he makes the point about wisdom uh, by, by telling a story about the complete opposite of wisdom. Uh, a totally different approach as to say, here, you want to see how this is a train wreck? You really didn't say that because there were no trains back then, but you get the point. Uh, This makes such a wreck out of this person's life that it seems that doing things God's way would be immeasurably better. So notice what the issue is in terms of living a life of wisdom in godly contentment. It's not the fact, on the point of this rich fool, it's not the production of the land. It's not the fact that he has done economically well. That's not an issue. That's okay. It's not his assets. It's not his extraordinary wealth. It's not in his portfolio. It's in none of that is really the point. The problem, as Jesus reveals it, is the irrationality. The, the, the twaddle, the absurdity, the whole approach of this man to finding his contentment and where he finds it. And we see this in different areas of his approach. We, we see the absurdity of his strategy. Um, I actually read the, uh, this, this portion uh, to, to our son last night, uh, and we got to the point where the rich fool says in verse, uh, verse 17, What shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. I'll do this. I will tear down my barns. I will build bigger ones. And Josh looked at me and he said, Why didn't he just add on to what he had? Fair points. He gets it. This guy didn't. Uh, I I think this guy did. I I think he may be wanting to make a point. Uh, Who knows? But the point is, wrongly directed contentment in some places can display strategic foolishness. This man doesn't want to build extensions or just add on what he needs. He wants to level the old stuff, build fresh, larger, more expansive stuff that people are really going to notice. As if to point out my contentment, my reason for being is in what I can provide for myself. Well, there's that. There's the foolishness of his strategy, but also we can have a foolishness of perspective when we ask whose wealth is it anyway, to paraphrase Drew Carey. Um, Verses 17 and 18, it's it's really the grammar of this, the the particular um, persons uh, and tenses of the language here. Uh, We see the, the rich man betrays his whole view of life uh, in the particular construction of the language. He talks about how he has nowhere to store my crops, and I will tear down my barns. There I will store my grains and my goods. Do you sense a first-person singular trend here? Well, when you get to the verbs... It's at least, um, to his credit, he's at least consistent, uh, but, but badly so. 
where he said, he asked the rhetorical question, what shall I do? He knows. Um, I have nowhere to store my cross. And he says, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, I, 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 I. He is betraying the fact. And what Luke is saying here to us is that eventually this can't be stuffed down. If you are living a life where you seek contentment in yourself, anything different from Christ, your language and your approach and your stance and your actions and your thoughts are going to come out. And you can be either allied against God or allied against Him. And here we see the defiance of a life that is marked by discontent and a refusal to find satisfaction in God. And we have the foolish assumption of his future, where he says, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Your leisure time is what counts. This, this is nothing against, by the way, this is nothing against retirement. Retirement's great. I hope to get there one day uh, and, and hope, it, hope it's phenomenal. But we don't live for that. That is not our primary reason for existence. That it's, it's not... Retirement does not serve us. Our possessions do not serve us. God blesses us to be a blessing to others and to find our hope in Him. To which Jesus points out, it doesn't end well for the rich fool. Verse 20, God said to him, fool, just to make the point. This night your soul is required of you and the things you have, you have prepared. Whose will they be? You can't take it with you, God says, as what is implied, God took the life of the rich fool that very evening. So this is directing us. Jesus is using this extended example of foolishness to shape us to find our contentment in the God uh, who should be our treasure. So what Jesus is saying is the, the life that is transformed by the gospel and by union with Christ, finds its contentment in the giver of that happy union. This is what is meant by being rich towards God. And it happens all through the pages of the Bible. We see this elsewhere. Uh, Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. Remove far from me falsehood and lying, the writer says. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Don't let me get so opulent and so driven by that opulence that I forget who God is. Nor let me be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Don't let me be so destitute that I get desperate and I discredit who God is. But he says, keep me where you know I need to be. How often is that our prayer? Or Philippians 4, 11 through 13, where Paul says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, that translates to 100% of the time, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
And it's not through his effort, he says in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That is not a verse that you put on a wristband to inspire you for your next triathlon. That is a reality at the bottom of the Christian life that forms a foundation where you can say in anything, I am content because God is there. And even though I do not have the stuff I want, I have him. Or 1 Timothy 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Hebrews 13.5, Why can we keep our life free from the love of money? Because we have the assurance from God, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So as we ask Christ to see us through our circumstances, we need to beg him that he would be so much at the center of our lives and our affections that we would be satisfied in him. That if we are living in his kingdom, he would shape us and polish us more and more into the kingdom subjects he desires us to be. That our prayer would be, as in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then everything else will find its proper place. You don't turn that on its head. You seek the kingdom first. That kingdom seeking was at the core of the existence of Corrie Ten Boom, if you've read her book, The Hiding Place, uh, you, you know quite a bit of her story. Uh, the Ten Boom family uh, lived in the Netherlands, and they were very active in hiding Jews from the SS in Nazi-occupied Holland. Well, they were betrayed by another family, and uh, the whole family spent time in, a constant, in concentration camps. Uh, she lost many members, uh, her members of her family. Uh, she barely, Corey barely survived herself. And it was in those very destitute, trying, um, spirit-crushing times uh, that she learned and appropriated and dwelt on and loved and treasured the truth that she shared when she said these words, you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. And Jesus is not asking you to give away all your stuff. He does that with the rich young ruler in another situation, but he had a different application there. But what Jesus is saying is, if you lost X, fill in the blank, whatever. Would you be okay? Not because you're okay, but because of who holds you in his grip. If this financial area of your life took a downward spiral, would you be satisfied that you still had Jesus? Is Jesus enough for you no matter what is taken away, no matter how the rug falls out from, is ripped out from under your feet? Because we all seek contentment. That's one thing that binds humanity together. We're all chasing it on one level or another. And the question is, in whom do we seek that contentment? How we answer that question determines our present and eternal destiny. Who or what is enough for us? 
Uh, I, I like to think that sometimes uh, singers can turn out to be the best theologians, uh, maybe even accidentally. As I was scoping out th- this idea and, and, and thinking back, I ran across the lyrics of a song from years ago, in fact, 40 years ago. Um, and uh, I'm just going to share a number of the, the verses. It, it goes verse, chorus, verse, chorus. So I'm going to save the chorus for the end because that's really what makes the point. But uh, here are some of the lyrics of this particular song. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. You may be a state trooper. You might be a young Turk. You may be the head of some big TV network. You may be rich or poor. You may be blind or lame. You may be living in another country under another name. You may be a construction worker working on a home. You may be living in a mansion or you may live in a dome. You might own guns. You might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord. You might even own banks. You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop, know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress, may be somebody's heir. Might like to wear cotton, might like to wear silk, might like to drink whiskey, might like to drink milk. You might like to eat caviar, might like to eat bread. You may be sleeping on the floor or in a king-sized bed and the chorus comes. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Thank you, Bob Dylan. That was from his song, Gotta Serve Somebody, and he makes the point, truly, we find our contentment on one side or the other. In the world and its trappings, or in Christ and what he offers to give us. And that is the beauty of Jesus' offer. Is that in the gospel, our Lord had everything. He had heaven's throne. He could have been content with that. And yet, as Paul said in Philippians 2, he gave that all up. He humbled himself. He lived the life we were incapable of. He died the death that we deserved. And he opened the path for us to be content in him. And because Jesus went to that length for us, would it not be a beautiful thing for us to remember always supremely to be satisfied in our Lord? Let us pray. Almighty God, who did not even hold back your very own Son, but handed him over for us all, we pray you make us content with every good thing you give us for doing your will. And may your word dwell in us richly to capture our hearts for Christ, to humble our hearts before Christ, and to comfort our hearts in Christ. Lord, hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.